Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music on this hump day and a windy one it is out there today. I think if we were in the hundred acre wood they would call it blustery. <laughs> Do you got any control over the thermostat around here? Not really. It I mean, is, I could uh, go out there and do a little dance and <laughs> hope it works, but I don't think it really works. So it's, it's comfortable here in the Element Wealth Studios. But just across the hall in the bathroom, the heater has been blowing out hot hair for a while. Who's in charge? I haven't the foggiest, but you're right. It does feel a bit like a <laughs> sauna, which is not... Really what I was expecting to walk into? I didn't know a sauna was part of the fringe benefits here in Super Talk. <laughs> I'm not dressed for the sauna. Are we being visited by the Finnish? <laughs> it's true. Because <laughs> they love their saunas. Oh, okay. They run Something around. Like 80% of all saunas sold in the world are sold to Finland. Really? Oh, yeah. Everybody's got, like, if you have a house, you have a sauna. Like a home sauna, oh, yeah. huh? <laughs> What's up with that? Something unique to the Finnish culture, I reckon. Well, back over here in the United States, former President Donald J. Trump, the J, according to the people over there at MSNBC, stands for jail. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I rained yesterday downtown New York. What a circus that deal was. He was arraigned. I didn't expect to see 34 felony counts. 34 felony counts. Now, when you start digging into this deal, uh, it's it's a little hard to decipher. What exactly are they after here? Uh, falsifying business records is what they're saying, in the first degree. The proceeding took, as expected, as predicted, less than an hour. And then the president jetted off to his home in uh, southern Florida at Mar-a-Lago, delivered some remarks last night. I did, I did catch the president, the live broadcast, 
of his uh, remarks, uh, suffice it to say, he ain't happy. I don't blame him, honestly. This does look like a complete and total farce, witch hunt. Definitely the weaponization of government institutions in this situation, our legal system, our legal apparatus, weaponized, used as a tool. Speaking of tool, what about D.A. Alvin Brack? (laughs) I see what you did there. Yeah, exactly. So Donald Trump did make a statement this morning on his Truth Social Network. Quote, Republicans in Congress should defund the DOJ and FBI until they come to their senses. The Democrats have totally weaponized law enforcement in our country and are viciously using the abuse of power to interfere with our already under siege elections. I can't help but laugh a little bit every time he makes a statement on Truth Social. Because the only way the vast majority of people get to read his statements on Truth Social are when they're shared on other social media platforms. That's absolutely true. And that I generally don't check out his activity on the platform. I see it in other media. You're exactly right, Rhino, in that respect. And I think that's just a, a function of the network not doing all that great from an activity perspective. But just reading the legalese uh, in the in the arraignment in the counts, it, it's it's just crazy. But basically, I read a couple of statements here. And the grand jury aforesaid by this in aforesaid, what why do we got to talk like that? Aforesaid by this indictment further accuses the defendant of the crime of in all caps, falsifying business records in the first degree. In violation of penal law, section 175.10, committed as follows, the defendant in the county of New York, blah, 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 blah. Okay, great, thanks. Thanks for playing. So, you know, I've, I've been clear that I'm not sure it's in the best interest of the country that Donald Trump be reelected, although... If he is the nominee on the Republican ticket, I'm all in. Uh, Right now, if you look at the field, who we got? Nikki Haley, uh, former Governor Asa Hutchinson of New York, and my favorite, Vivek Ramaswamy, who I don't think is going to win this chance, doesn't have a chance. And Tiger King Joe Exotic. I forgot about Joe Exotic. Now, is he running Joseph from, Maldonado. Is he running from jail or is he out? Federal prison. That's what I thought. Yeah. Where he's serving time for animal abuse, which he claims is all trumped-up charges. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm a fan of, of Donald Trump's policies, no doubt about it. I think they were good for the country, and I'd like to see many of those policies reinstated. Any person who's honest and clear thinking and logical and rational has to agree that things were better than they are now. And the polls bear that out, by the way. To me, Rhino, this isn't so much about getting Donald Trump, although certainly Trump believes it is, and no doubt D.A. Bragg 
when he was running for election, said, yeah, I'm going after Donald Trump, and the other one was the uh, Attorney General of the state of New York. I mean, it's like a central theme of her campaign was pursuing Donald Trump. But what I do think is going on here is that the Democrats are starting to smell the coffee, as they say, and they have become woke, not to be confused with the other context of woke, meaning that you're aware of social injustice. Now, they've become awoke as in awoken from their sleep, their deep sleep, while Sleepy Joe has been <laughs> driving the bus there, right? That things ain't going real well for Joe, and that he's going to struggle getting re-election, and I think they fear Donald Trump would trounce him. I really do. And this is their way of eliminating that threat. That's my theory. I think it depends on who you ask. Okay. That That is from the perspective of the Democrats have been asleep. They're just now waking up to this danger, to their power. Other side of that coin is you give them all the benefit of the doubt, and they're as conniving and as scheming as you could possibly imagine, and they are promoting Trump to the ticket because they think he's the most beatable. Okay. Fair fair enough. Fair enough. But surely I do believe that they are coming around to the truth that this president is an abject failure and that most people in this country, regardless of their political stripes, ain't happy. I do think that. And think about what's on the horizon here. I've been really diving into a lot of the economic data. I I mean, I do that as a hobby. Uh, And we talk about it a lot here. But I've always thought, literally, that the price of gas is a huge factor in the way folks vote. The price of gas around Election Day, specifically. It just, you can't block it out of your head because it's in your eyes all the time. If you're moving about, like many Americans do, you can't help but see it. Pay attention to it. You see it on the signs on the road all over the place. And then when you pull up, you cry when you're shelling out that 100 bucks. Well, OPEC's recent moves here, and we still aren't sure moves in their cutting production. China looks like they're coming back online from a demand perspective. All of that equals higher prices at the pump. I heard this morning 13 cents overnight in some areas of the country. So I think we're poised to see $4 gas in Mississippi by June, on average. Okay, And we have the lowest in the country, typically. I think we're looking at $5 average price of gas of regular nationwide. Whether or not that hangs in there through 24 prior to the election, not sure. But it doesn't look good, and that's going to factor in. We're coming right back. In the Element Well Studios, former Congressman Greg Harper at 11.05. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. 
Super Talk Mississippi. everyone to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are in the Element Wealth Studios. I thought we had a good day yesterday at Sally Kate Winters Family Services. Good group of people up there and a much needed service. You know, we didn't we didn't get a chance to share all the stories of uh, that were shared with us before the show of some of the Cases, some of the residents that Sally Kate has served recently, but it's heartbreaking when you see that those sorts of situations with uh, children involved. Um, they they shouldn't have to deal with that. Honestly, that just always always crushes me when I see that stuff. So thank God the Sally Kate Winters organization is there to help those in need at that critical point of their life and get them on the track and on the right track and off to a productive adult life. That's the goal. And they do a fantastic job of that. So we appreciate that. Sally Kate Winters, all one word, dot org is where you go to donate to help them out. And we certainly appreciate that. Again, we got Congressman Greg Harper. He, of course, at one time represented the Mississippi's 3rd District, which is now the seat now held by Congressman Michael Guest. He's going to be in with us at 11.05. We'll break down the indictment, the arraignment of the former president, his speech last week. Uh, excuse me, last night, last night. Let's see. Leo and McComb says, my question is, if Trump is found guilty, can he still run for president? He can. We we reviewed that uh, the last couple of days. It's a very valid question, of course, because it's pretty rare. But, yeah, it turns out that there, uh, the Constitution has three requirements. Got to be 35, born in the U.S., and have lived here for 14 years, I believe, if I'm is that the way you recall it? I don't have it in front yeah, of me, but the, when I looked it up. The time frame to have having had lived in the country was really just to keep loyalists out of the position right after the Revolutionary War. Yeah, I was but, thinking. Which, technically, it wasn't right after the Revolutionary War because the Constitution everything. Like, we think of 1776 and we think of the Constitution, and there's actually a, a bit of a gap in there. Yeah. Well, uh and when I first saw that, I kind of I did scratch my head. I get the thirty five. I get the born here, the fourteen years. I uh, the residency situation. I was a little confused. I do believe that's probably more applicable uh, to the day when uh, the Constitution was drafted. Probably makes more made more sense then. You just wonder if intentionally. I don't think it's actually worded as born here. I think it's naturalized citizen. Okay. You, think you so? had a couple presidents at the very beginning of the country that weren't were born in England. 
Hmm. Okay. Well, I could have, I could have uh, misread. But really, it. that that boils down to you were born here, didn't? Yeah. Because yeah, the yeah, ones yeah. that were born in England became citizens. They were naturalized with the creation of the country. That's right. It says a natural born citizen. Yeah. So there's a bit of a nuance there. Yeah, I agree. Must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. So the point is that the threshold ain't high. It's for the people to decide. But also to put all that in context, think about the maturity level of a 35-year-old in the late 1700s versus now. I agree. Agree with you there. You're still playing video games, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm older than 35. Not that, still that, playing video games. that disqualifies you as being being uh, a candidate for president. Just Sometimes to you just it. have to turn the brain off. Yeah, exactly. And Franklin used French women. <laughs> okay. So that's it. Now, we talked about yesterday, or was it day before? I can't remember. But that we found that we're two candidates in our history for president while they were incarcerated in prison. The, let's see, one in 1920. You told us yesterday the other one, 92? 90, yes. Uh, they're not memorable candidates, so I don't have their names Stuck in my head. Lyndon LaRouche. Okay, yeah. And who was the other one? Eugene V. Debs. There you go. You can Google all that, figure it out. But nonetheless... Which, Lyndon LaRouche was one of those that, if there was a presidential election, he was on the ticket. It just so happened that in 92, he was also in federal prison. Okay. (laughs) Coincidentally, right? Oh, gosh. Let's see what else. Uh, Kevin in Monticello says the last few elections have been very close, with about 48% each being liberal and conservative. I don't see the 4 to 5% swing votes going to Trump. The liberals want Trump as the nominee. Bear in mind, Kevin, that doesn't really matter. The vote count doesn't matter in terms of the popular vote. What matters is the Electoral College. So presidential elections are totally different in that respect and when you when you sit down and look at the map i encourage you to do that look at the the electoral map of the last few election cycles and when you look at uh donald trump and why he prevailed in terms of the electoral map and the electoral votes over hillary clinton and in uh 2016 it it really boiled down to the three or four so-called swing states, and that's what's going to happen again. Who can win Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia? Now, in prior cycles, it was more Florida and Ohio. And Florida and Ohio have been reliably red the last two cycles. North Carolina can be a little squishy as well. It went red. But the, we'll never forget watching the returns the night of the 2016 election. And I'm not sure which one of those states came in first, was called first. But that's when the folks at uh, MSNBC and CNN were, were absolutely beside themselves. I mean, it, it was the... It is more of the environment of a funeral. And it was 
Michigan. It may have been Pennsylvania that came in first, now that I think about it, because it's east. But then Michigan and Wisconsin fell, and they knew that it uh, wasn't going to happen. And they actually thought they had a chance at Florida, and they didn't take Florida. It was very close, though. But, you know, it's always that panhandle that comes in later, based on the time zone. And when that happened, and that pushed Trump over the top in Florida, and then Pennsylvania fell in Trump's column, Michigan uh, and Wisconsin. That's the difference. And then when you drill into that, it comes down to a few counties. And that's just how tight it is. Which I wonder how quickly the cycle will change because it seems to get quicker and quicker if you look back at presidential elections in the electoral college historically the farther back you go the slower the changes are which makes sense yeah but in modern times like you look at the last 50 75 years it's been roughly every 10 12 15 years there's been a pretty big shift in how one state votes or how a region votes, or how this or that. But that number, the closer you get to present day, drops from 15 to 12 to 10 to getting near 8. With how quickly people are willing to move around and and the, the lack of what previous generations had with five, six decade long careers at the same place in the same location. Yeah. We're seeing demographics And that presidential map looks different more often than it did in the past. I think that's true. But you know what we've gotten to as a result of that? Before you ever you ever count the first ballot, before they have the first ballots ever cast, you pretty much could sit down and and calculate the electoral votes, with the exception of about four states. Oh yeah. Because and what I mean by that is California, New York, Illinois, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, I can name a few more. Put those in the blue column right off the bat. And on the red column, just go ahead and put Mississippi, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, Alabama. Used to be Georgia. Not anymore. That's one of the the, changes. Right, it's one of the changes. Uh, Go ahead and put those in the red column. That's, That's the way it works. Nevada has become a little squishy. At late, but not many electoral votes in Atlanta. I mean, the, it's not like the prize that Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin are and the effect they can have on the final outcome. When we come back, Illinois and other states are sort of bifurcated, and they're not sort of, they are, with respect to their presidential support. The map of Illinois, the electoral map, fascinating. We're in the Element Well Studios. FM. Is that matter most to Mississippians? Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
Okay, we're back in the Element Well Studios, and so I, I, before we went out to break, and I won't dwell on this before a minute, I just find it fascinating because I think it's important to understand the distinction in presidential elections because of the Electoral College than it is in other elections where the popular vote is what rules. So Illinois is a fascinating state to me, and it's for this reason. There are 102 counties in Illinois, 12 supported Joe Biden, 100, uh, pardon me, 90 supported Donald Trump, went for Donald Trump. But the popular vote, 3.4 million for Joe Biden, 2.4 for Donald Trump. And it's obviously because of the, the population centers in Illinois, primarily the city of Chicago, the nation's third largest in Cook County, and and the suburbs around Cook County. They comprise six of the 12 counties that voted uh, in favor of Joe Biden. The other is the county that houses uh, Peoria. I thought that was interesting. Springfield, which pretty sure is the capital of Illinois. Right, Rhino? Is that... Um, Thanks, right, yeah. It's red. I haven't done the state capitals in a while. I haven't either, but I want to say Springfield's the capital. But nonetheless, when you look at the map, it's like, wow, that's mostly red. 90 counties in red, 12 in blue. Yet, from an electoral college perspective and popular vote perspective as a result, which drives the EB awards, how the, those votes are awarded, I mean, it's 57% for the Democrat, 40% for Donald Trump, uh, for the Republican Donald Trump in 2020. And that's been fairly consistent for a long time. So the point there is, I don't know how many electoral votes uh, Illinois has, but it's a fair amount. Um, And uh, California obviously has the most. I think New York second, and then it's Texas, Florida in there, Illinois. Illinois has 19. Okay. So it's a big prize, is the point. Um, Which that answer is one of the questions we got on the ceasefire text line from the 662. Yeah. Why don't more states do like Maine and Nebraska and split their electoral votes? That would make more sense, wouldn't it? And it would for a representation perspective. But politically, you are cutting yourself off. You're, you're diminishing your leverage to the big political parties to really pay attention to your state because there's less of a prize to win. Yeah. If Illinois, for example, decided to split theirs up and to say, I don't know, make it easy on numbers, six different chunks with Chicago getting an extra one for population, then Illinois would not have that big 19 on the board they would have 19 divided by 6, and it would be more work. It would be less bang for your buck for the two big political parties, so they would get less attention. The history that I'm looking at says it rarely does it happen, 
that they end up splitting the vote. But it but it is uh, it is the the approach they use both Nebraska and Maine. It, what I'm reading here, since 1992, Nebraska awards two electoral votes based on the statewide vote and one vote for each of the three con- congressional districts. That's interesting, the way that works. Um, but I don't, I don't know how many congressional districts uh, Nebraska has. It, it's probably not too terribly many. But look at it from the financial perspective of the parties. Nebraska there, or, yeah, Nebraska with five electoral votes. Five, yeah, see it. What's another state with five votes that you can just go to the biggest population center and campaign there versus in Nebraska, you've got to get the whole state. It's true. It's going to cost more. That's true. It's absolutely true. So, therefore, you're going to get less attention compared to the state where just it's five up for grabs at the one big population center. Right. So, Mississippi has one more congressional district than does Nebraska, based on our population. So we have six. Nebraska has five. But that's not where it's won or lost. It's won or lost in these four states that I'm discussing, that I'm focused on, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, now Arizona, which used to be fairly reliably red. So as you said, through time, you you pointed out it's changed somewhat. Used to be Ohio. I always thought if you can fill up Cleveland Brown Stadium as a Republican, you can win Ohio. Because again, if you look at that Cuyahoga County and all the political pundits, Rhino, whenever they're talking about presidential politics, it's Cuyahoga County, and that's kind of fallen off the map now because that's been uh, somewhat reliably red, and and it's the bifurcation in the state. You got the Cuyahoga County on the eastern side up by the Blake, and it's it's just more Democrat. And you get out towards the western part of Ohio, and it is uh, it's a little more rural, and it's uh, typically described as as more conservative Catholics. What they say about that part of Ohio, Pennsylvania is a state that's in, incredibly divided the western Pennsylvania from eastern Pennsylvania. It's night and day. If you spend any time there, I mean, it's like two different cultures. It's kind of like Louisiana from a cultural perspective. South Louisiana is unlike North Louisiana. Our coast is, I would say, more similar, obviously, to South Louisiana. And you get out of our coast and travel north in our state, things start to change from just from a cultural perspective. And and it's all a function, I think, of how the states were settled uh, to a great extent. Oh, yeah. The nationalities of the people that landed where they did. But Pennsylvania is interesting. What's not different in Mississippi and Louisiana is politically, even though the, the cultures are a bit different and the lifestyle is a bit different from the areas of the state, politically, it, it's, it's fairly constant. Pennsylvania's not like that. Western Pennsylvania politics, Eastern Pennsylvania, night and day. Now, that's a big state. I want to say maybe 12 electoral votes in, in Pennsylvania. So it's significant in the overall count. But again, before you ever cast a ballot, you can go ahead and mark the vast majority of the states, I mean all but about four or five, in their respective columns. Pennsylvania's got 20. Okay. So it's I said 19, I think. Uh, but it's so it's big. 
Uh, Florida, what's Florida? 23, 4, something like that? 29. Okay. Texas, I think, north of 30. 38. All right. And uh, California is what? 53 or 55? 55. 55. So you see what I'm going there. New York's like 18, 19. the last election. Right. Uh, New York, 18, 19 or so? New York, 29. Okay, so it's uh, more than I thought. Um, Apologize for that. But you see where I'm going, though. Just go ahead and put California, New York. So that's 55 and 29 right off the bat. Right off the bat, go ahead and stick that in the Democrat column. That's that's why it's just so dang hard. And this is where Trump was smart. And we've certainly shared this before, but in 2016, right before Election Day, seemed to me like Trump was up 24 hours a day doing rallies, traveling around, and Trump Force One, as it is called now, but he was in Michigan. He was in Pennsylvania. It was like three or four a day. Yeah, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. He knew. His team knew. This is where the election for president is won or lost. No need going to California. Do you do? Do you remember though, Romney? He went to California. Like I'm going to turn California around. That was dumb. His butt should have been in where he had a chance, where it made a difference. You're not going to flip. New York, you're not going to flip uh, California. Now, I'll grant Lee Zeldin, as a candidate for governor, came really close, much closer than anybody thought in New York I'm talking about, of taking down incumbent Kathy Hochul. But presidents, you you got to go to where your base is, of course, because your base wants to see you. Of course, that's just the right and the courteous thing to do, just as Donald Trump came to Mississippi in '16. But when you're getting closer to the election, when folks are on the fence, you got that kind of squishy, independent middle, that's where the election is won or lost. Your butt better be in those states we just talked about. Georgia's going to be a big one this time as well. We are stepping aside for a break right here. Another segment in here of the first hour, and then Congressman Greg Harper at 11.05. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Back in the Element Well Studios, it is midday, Super Talk Mississippi. So, it was a bit of a circus, shall we say, outside the courthouse in New York. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos were the only two members of Congress present in the crowd outside, it is reported. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene was, of course, surrounded by security, a lot of it. I watched a video this morning of her delivering a speech, had a had a bullhorn with a mic attached to it, and uh, 
protesters were trying to drown out her message, she said, quote, Trump is joining some of the most incredible people in history being arrested today. Nelson Mandela was arrested, served time in prison. Jesus, Jesus was arrested and murdered by the Roman government. Now you see why I have a problem with MTG. She 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 starts talking before she actually thinks about what she's going to say. That or she's really just that dumb. <laughs> I believe she is a vying to be Donald Trump's running mate. Just an opinion I have there. Oh, I'm sure she would love that that opportunity, but. It's not going to really help him a whole lot if you're trying to put him up on the same pedestals as Jesus. I agree. I think that was, those were poorly chosen words and a uh, not really a valid comparison. No. Not even close, of course. Jerry in Waynesboro on the ceasefire tax line. That's 601-879-4395. Strategy is Biden pick Hillary for his VP running mate, beats Trump or whoever then resigns and plan is complete. Hillary is president. God help us. I don't think Hillary would agree to be Joe Biden's running mate. I think she would see that as beneath her. She'd be insulted. I think so as well. Mike from Olive Branch says, so sorry to hear that young man wanting to leave Mississippi. We were just talking about that. I was too, Mike, but um, I didn't dwell on it. But I suspect there may be some some history there of which we're not aware that might uh, be the underlying cause and reason why uh, the, the uh, resident there at Sally Kate Winters wants to leave Mississippi. Let's pray and hope that he returns. Uh, but we don't know the story, and I didn't ask, obviously, but but we do know that when they take somebody in, it, it, there's some rather deplorable circumstances <clears throat> behind the scenes that necessitated them becoming a resident there. So we we got to give him a break on that. I was doing my best to charm him and persuade him to stay. And we need all our good, talented, productive young folks to stay in our state. We've talked about that. We know that's an issue. We we send them off to our fantastic colleges and universities. They graduate and then leave. And um, I have described it as subsidizing the other states with talent, talent that was developed and, uh, to a great extent, Funded by Mississippians. We've got to do a better job of keeping them here. I don't think that's any secret. We've got a number of state lawmakers and statewide leaders who agree. I hope we start taking more action and uh, start developing some, some ideas and get creative and innovative in that. So I hear you, Mike, and I share your concerns, but... Just know that there's likely a story behind the scenes that we aren't aware of, and uh, so we gotta we gotta yield in that particular case. I will never forget the look on Wolf Blitzer's face. That I believe in reference to the night of the 2016 election. I agree, he was stunned.
It was like a pall had been draped across those studios. They just couldn't see it, could not see it. But again, you remember Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, when those fell. They knew it at that point. I was shocked. I was actually in Florida in a hotel room for a big event, and um, a big business event. And I, I was just in disbelief and, and ecstatic, honestly, that Donald Trump was about to be called as the victor in the presidential election in 16. Ecstatic, because I didn't want Hillary Clinton, obviously, to be the president. But just shocked that those states fell. I, I didn't see it leading up to it. And neither did the pollsters, uh, except, oh, shoot, who's that guy, Scott? His name escapes me. He's the one that I've always paid a lot of attention to, and he's pretty accurate. We're going to step aside for a break right here. Scott Rasmussen just came to me. We're stepping aside. It's break time. Fox News, Super Talk News, former Congressman Greg Harper next. Stay with us. to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios on this hump day. And joining us now is former Congressman Greg Harper in the Element Wealth Studios. Congressman, good to see you, sir. Hey, great to see you again. I'm glad to be here with you and hope you're having a great day. Lots seems to be a few things to cover in the news today. A few things going on. So, unprecedented uh, arraignment, indictment and arraignment of a former or sitting president, that being former President Donald J. Trump. He takes his jet from Florida up to, we were watching it here in the studio, the day before yesterday, uh, goes up to New York. And it was a very, fairly short proceeding, but that's typically how arraignments work, uh, do they not? Right. It's, it should be should be really uh, quick. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was, and it wasn't as much of a circus as I thought it might, well, not inside the courtroom, uh, as you thought it might uh, be. Uh, so it's it seemed to be, you know, pretty ordinary in that yeah. regard, but it's just, it's historic in a bad way. And, you know, you just, it continues. I, I mean, look, you know, I know... President Trump accomplished some amazing things during his four years in office and policies and things. Uh, I mean, forever will we be grateful for the uh, three Supreme Court justices for him being there or uh, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That's something that every president had said they would do, but nobody, they all managed to listen to the, the State Department and not do it. Uh, and the world did not come to an end. So there's a lot that's that's there that's that's happened. But, you know, in his defense, I've never seen anybody attacked by everybody like uh, this man has been. And this is just a continuation of, of that. It's it's a he's, a he's a demon to many of them. He's just a, and he's a figure. And uh, my, my fear is more 
that it's not so much about Trump as it is uh, his base that they oppose and and people that think differently than than uh, than him or than them. Pardon me. And they sort of channel that frustration and that that uh, uh, costing and that targeting at him. He's the yeah. scapegoat for it to a great extent. Look, we we know this. If if this had if he had lost the 2016 election, if Trump had lost. Or if he had ridden off into the sunset after the 2020 election, none of this would be going on. I agree on. with you. Uh, it, it just wouldn't wouldn't be happening at all. Uh, but I, I doubt if we'll see any prosecutions for past uh, bad behaviors by somebody who might have had a private server in their home or had <laughs> classified emails that were not protected or maybe paid for a uh, Russian hoax dossier. Uh, I mean, so we, we probably won't see that. At least we would have thought we would never have seen it. But right. now there are some probably red state prosecutors that are sitting here thinking, okay, how can I resurrect one of these cases that seems to have been in the uh, cold case file? People are calling for it. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, you see it all over the place. Yeah, which it's it's just... Look, this prosecutor made a campaign promise that this is what he was going to do. He was going to get Trump or indict him. So he's he's done what he said he was going to do. Now, on the flip side of that, he pro- probably wasn't thinking that if we're trying to get rid of Trump, hmm, gosh, all of a sudden now this has really helped Trump. Yeah, uh, He's raised millions and millions of dollars since the announcement. His uh, list of volunteers has gone up, and he's in latest polling. He's up. Certainly more than double digits, you know, like 20% up uh, in a primary. So uh, there's a lot of things to digest here, but it is unfortunate uh, that we have seen the politis- uh, politicization of so many things, you know, where it is now we're going to try to crush you if you're not following and staying in the line here for us of what we want. And they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't consider him a, a threat to win. Uh, so you know you never know what their what their thought process is, but they're looking at it from a, a lot of ways. But it's uh, it's going to be a, a, a fun year and a half. I do think you're right, Congressman. That if he weren't a uh, a candidate and a strong candidate, uh, this wouldn't happen. I yeah. do believe, and and I also think that if the the current president had been uh, more successful and been uh, polling better and looked on more favorably by the electorate. Maybe we wouldn't see this, but I think they know they they got a, a battle on their hands to to win the hearts and minds of the people at the polls in twenty four, because they're not feeling too good about their situation. Yeah, and do we even you know look? Will Biden be uh, don't know the nominee? Yeah, on the next race for twenty twenty four. You know he's obviously saying the right things that he will be. But, hadn't announced yet, though. Yeah, but he's you know he, he hasn't officially announced, but he's tacitly announced at a minimum. So. Uh, you know, uh, who knows? I mean, <laughs> they may have to wake him up to see uh, what what his his plans are. But uh, it's you know it's pitiful. I mean, it, it's been I, I cannot believe we're in this situation for our country. How really well we were doing certainly pre-covid we we're off the charts doing well and if covid doesn't happen the election rules don't get relaxed and trump certainly totally would be would be have been reelected i believe uh, right. if that I had been too. the case but it's um you know it's it's dangerous for what we're dealing with around the world and we're not really focused on what the real threats uh, are right now for our country right. not just here but globally so we've got a, we've got a lot of work left to do well, Trump, uh, Congressman, you'd have to agree, is a master of dominating the news oh, cycle. 
Oh. He he really is. And and so they just handed that opportunity on a silver platter to him. Yeah, and and you know they, they, some of them have to have known that that would happen. That may be why the DOJ passed on the prosecution of this, why yeah. the previous prosecutor did that because they knew it would elevate him. Uh but it's it's going to be um it's tough Look, all you want is a fair fight, whatever that is, and this is uh, this is pretty underhanded. Uh, and so, even if you are maybe perhaps uh, fatigued from all of the Trump news <laughs> and things that we've uh, dealt with over the years, uh, this is something. I, I think you you hit a really great point there that this is going to be one of those that it is. Um, I mean, it elevates him because he really wasn't in the. If they leave him alone, he wouldn't have been in the news. Agree. And, and I think you're right. That in fact, that, he was struggling to get yes, in the news. They yes. deplatformed him off of social media. Right. And so we didn't have that daily routine of, of the left-wing news outlets featuring the Trump's tweets of the day, yeah. which all that did was get his name out there. Which which we missed because they were always pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> entertaining. They definitely yeah. were on the entertaining side in that regard, for sure. Something else that, that Donald Trump's very, very efficient at is um, – identifying a foil, as I would call it. So now he's got him a foil in T.A. Alvin Bragg. Oh, yeah. He's good at leveraging that. Yes, he, he <laughs> definitely uh, can create some uh, some enemies out there that uh, his supporters will rally against and right. uh, and be supportive of him. And, and look, even if you're not a Trump supporter, uh, even those that I, I've talked to that are, you know, not high on on Trump would say it. This is just a little over the top. Yeah. You know, this is not fair. Let's let's. This is not the right thing to be doing in our country. Even Mitt Romney, who made a statement, yes. said Donald Trump's unfit to be president, but this is wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was astounding. You know, and I haven't seen any uh, Republican that has come out and said this should have happened. Right. And I haven't seen any Democrats really that have stepped up and said this shouldn't be happening. They've been right. s- the ones that are, we would say, I guess there are some moderates still left out there. I can't name them off the top of my head right now. But they, they've not come out and been critical of this process. But they're being very short-sighted uh, by not criticizing it. Remember, former uh, director of the FBI, James Comey, uh, of course, who could forget all the chaos surrounding him and Trump and so forth, served under Trump, of course. Yesterday, he tweeted immediately, another good day. That's what he tweeted. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but the FBI is not politicized, no, though. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sure he just he was had to be talking about something else. The weather. He must have been talking about the weather forecast. Very short and sweet. Another oh. good day. So, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's just amazing how you can take a situation like this, such a big ordeal, and have um, such a gap in in just the perspective of it, depending on your political persuasion, rather than fair analysis. Well, I think it's pretty clear that the country doesn't really need to endure uh, four more years of of Joe Biden or or Democratic control that is going to be so far to the left that it just runs the country further into the ground. I mean, we're we're not out of the woods by any stretch on the banking crisis or other things that still have to be uh, watched and and looked out for. And so we need those conservative policies in place in in the White House. Now, will that be Donald Trump? Will that be somebody else that's out there that... The great thing about the Republican side is we have a pretty deep 
bench. We have some great uh, potential candidates uh, that I think would uh, would give us those same policies, maybe with less drama. Yeah. Uh, but these are things right now that I think that uh, probably the Republicans will rally around Trump uh, just to get get through this. This yeah. this is one that's uh, I hope will go away. Yeah, I, I do too. We we got to make a change for sure. Uh, can you hang around? Sure. With us? We Happy got Congressman to. Greg Harper in the Element Well Studios. Please stay with us. We'll come right back. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, it is middays on Super Talk Mississippi. We're visiting with former congressman who, who represented Mississippi's third district, Greg Harper. Uh, congressman Harper, I've had the, the pleasure of meeting your son before. Yeah, tell tell us a little bit. Well, thank you. Livingston's doing great. I I can't believe if if he's getting old or I'm getting old, <laughs> but he's 33. Uh, works at, at Primos on Lakeland uh, yep. every day, and uh, is just doing great. As my wife says, he's a G looking for an O. You know, he <laughs> he loves events. And Livingston has uh, fragile X syndrome, an X chromosome abnormality. Uh, and we're really excited that the University of Mississippi Medical Center is involved as one of the sites in the country for the ReConnect uh, trial, which is for a prescription uh, that, if it's approved by FDA, would be the very first prescription specifically for someone with Fragile X syndrome to help on social avoidance and behavioral issues that could be very beneficial. So I uh, would hope that anybody uh, listening who knows someone with Fragile X syndrome uh, between the ages of 3 and 22 uh, have them get in contact. You go on the website for UMMC, do UMMC Reconnect, and it will lead you to that information on how to sign up to be participate. doesn't cost anything reimburse your travel expenses if you have to travel even from another state yeah yeah absolutely and and you and i uh frequent many of the same events uh, around That's the area right. and uh in many cases uh livingston accompanies you and i always enjoy well uh, and, I, and i will bit. tell you one thing too you know i started when i was in congress and uh, internship program for students with intellectual disabilities back in 2010 using students from george mason university's uh, uh mason 
Life program. Yeah. And uh, they uh, we started with a small pilot program, about six students in five Republican offices. And then it's been a permanent program since then to where now well more than 250 House and Senate offices have participated using those students to come in and work in their office. And then the, the, the greatest honor I've ever had, uh, Gerard, was in December of 2018, my last full month in Congress. I had Livingston up there, and they had a ceremony to honor me for my work uh, uh, and to honor those students from that semester from George Mason. And uh, they called Livingston up. I didn't know this was going to happen. They called Livingston up next to the member that was emceeing it, asked me to come up, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know from this day forward, this program will forevermore be called the Greg and Livingston Harper Congressional Internship Program for Students with intellectual disabilities that made it awesome. made it all worthwhile. That is that. Congratulations, so, and that, that is awesome. That that's Thanks. so cool. Thanks for letting me share that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, it's it's a campaign season in oh, the great state it of Mississippi. Is, isn't it? You know? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, you especially would know that uh, being on an every two year cycle. Yes, sir. As our members of the U.S. House of Representatives, you finish one, you get elected. You uh, you sit down, take a breath, and you start again, right? That's right. I mean, it's a it's a yeah. very busy. Well, you schedule. know, the first the last time that I ran was in November 2016. Yeah. I had not quite served eight years at that point, and that was my eleventh time on the ballot. Wow! So it's wow. just it's crazy uh, how it how it works, yeah. and uh, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think it's how the founders meant it. And sometimes people will say, "Well, you need to change that. It should be for every four years." No, it's the the people's house you need to be close to the to the constituents and if they don't think you're doing a good job you know they can deal with it uh, pretty quickly i think the uh, and i totally agree but i think the other value congressman of the of the two-year cycle in the house is that uh, you have the midterms in the middle of That's the presidential right. term so if you ain't real happy with how it's going in the <laughs> white house you can at least change the uh, the control in the house of representatives and stop the agenda you may not be able to get what you want through and i think we're witnessing that now thank goodness yeah uh, exactly know, to have uh, kevin mccarthy who's a great uh, speaker and great member uh, to be the speaker of the house right now is a, it's it, it's a firewall right now for what else uh, could be happening if we didn't have that. So, yeah, you're right. It's serious business. Big time. You know, I, I've shared this uh, this thought about the Obama uh, eight years. You know, President Obama got three giant pieces of legislation passed in uh, the first two years of his presidency, uh, Dodd-Frank, the um, the uh, the infrastructure plan, mm-hmm. the uh, recovery plan, I should say, right. when we came out of the banking crisis, that was the first thing they did. Uh, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, I think is what it was called. Uh, but then uh, health care. He spent all of his cycles, all of his political capital on that. And then, as you recall, that gave rise to the Tea Party. And in yeah, 2010, uh, as as uh, Barack Obama described it, it was a shellacking of Democrats, flipped the House. That put the rest of the Obama agenda on ice. And I always share that with Democrats who say, well, geez, he was the best president we ever had. I said, what did he do after the first two years? He didn't yeah. get any of his agenda uh, through. It was, it was absolutely neutered at that point. Well, look, if we hadn't gotten control at, at that point, uh, after in the midterms, after Obama's first election, uh, you wouldn't even want to think what would have happened on climate change laws. That's that right. Cap and trade. Oh, that was the next been, agenda yeah, item. Cap and trade. Been, it was a disaster in the making. And because it took so long, we were at least able to stall the implementation right. of the uh, 
I can't call it the Affordable Care Act because <laughs> not it affordable. wasn't. It wasn't uh, of Obamacare. Yeah, uh, that kept them from doing that. Otherwise, they could have gone right through and, That's and, true. and hit us. So That's yeah, true. Kind of phased that. in. And then the other thing he wanted, as you recall, was car check. Yes. That was his other big, and he campaigned on that. He did. Yeah. Uh, which would have essentially changed the sort of the complexion of the workforce in this country. I, I saw the other day only 6% of the private sector is unionized. 6%. Right. Lowest in our history. I dare say it would be somewhat higher than that if car check had passed. Absolutely. And so. unions would have had way more political control than they need. And it would have been there. good for the country. I, I totally agree. So we got um, statewide elections That's right. coming up. Uh, of course, uh, Governor Tate Reeves would be the incumbent uh, on the Republican side. Uh, he, he's going to face a significant challenger in Democrat, uh, Brandon Presley, who I think by all accounts is likely to secure the Democrat nomination. What do you think about that race? You know, look, I've, I've certainly have appreciated all that uh, Governor Reeves has done uh, from the time he was treasurer and then uh, lieutenant governor and, and now as governor. And he's, he's doing all the right things. Uh, he's had an enormous amount of uh, e- emergency declarations wow. and, and uh, disasters that he's had to deal with, uh, more so than any other governor in our state's uh, history, and he's handled it well. Uh, and I, I think that when you go down and look at how well he performs on the coast, uh, and certainly in DeSoto County, for instance, and uh, he's going to do extremely well. Uh, and I, I do expect, yeah, it's look, it's it, you don't take anything for granted. Sure. Uh, but I believe he's got the necessary uh, funds and infrastructure within his uh, campaign. Uh, I would expect him uh, to be reelected. Yeah. I, I I would too. Uh, Brandon Presley, of course, wasting no time. Seems like on a daily basis he's uh, launching attacks. That's right. You know, that's right. And, and and that's what he's got to do. Well, honestly, let me tell you one thing about uh, about Tate. That's a great thing about Mississippi. We always call our elected officials by their first <laughs> name. You know, so and so. Uh, but when I was first elected, I was doing my best uh, to become the freshman class representative on the steering committee, which is where the power is. Right. It's not class president. It's right. steering committee. You go back to your church's committee on committees. You're right. Whoever controls that controls what's going on. And so I was I thought I was maybe a couple of votes short, and I called uh, uh, Tate uh, and said, look, and he's lieutenant governor, and I said, look, I'm a little short, I think. Can you make a couple of calls? And there were two new members in my class who were former state treasurers that friends ah, would take. He there called, you go. He called them both, put in a good word for me, and I got elected to that. And without that, so much of what I was able to accomplish would never have happened. So I'm, I'm always appreciative That's for awesome. what he did for me as a friend. That's awesome. Uh, we're just about out of time here. Can you hang with us into the next if segment? You, if you yeah. are not sick of me no, yet. No, not, not, not whatsoever. Okay. There's plenty to talk about, and I enjoy the conversation. And I think our audience does, too. So let's uh, let's start the conversation about uh, the next on the ticket, Lieutenant Governor. Absolutely. We're going to have a very contentious primary with uh, incumbent uh, Delbert Hoseman. We'll face off with uh, State Senator Chris McDaniel. No, no stranger to statewide elections, for sure, having run for U.S. Senate. What do you think there? You know, look, it's uh, I, I do think it's a stretch to say that Delbert is a liberal. Okay, I hold mean, your thought I mean, there. So we got we'll, a break. We'll I mean, come that's, back that's on a that. Big stretch. <laughs> we got Congressman uh, Greg Harper in the Element Well Studios talking politics here today. Stay with us.
everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well Studios with former Congressman Greg Harper talking politics today. So we were just getting started, uh, Greg, on uh, what we might look forward to with respect to the race for lieutenant governor, the primary in particular that features incumbent Delbert Hoseman being challenged by State Senator Chris McDaniel, uh, both of whom are very well-known politicians. Absolutely. There are certainly two two names that are uh, certainly have incredible uh, name ID within our state from uh, past races and activities that's there. And, And look, it is the marquee. Uh, race no uh, doubt. on uh, for this year. I, I, I don't know anything else that even would be on the same page uh, with with this race from a primary. Uh, primary, agree. You know, so it's it's pretty significant that's there. You know, I I would say this. I've known uh, certainly you know both of them for a while, and Delbert I've known uh, really well for a long time, as I know you have as well. And you know, I think it's a real stretch to start labeling. Uh, anybody that you don't agree with everything as a rhino, uh, who, when you've been a person who's helped build the party up over the years and call him uh, a liberal, his work on voter ID should do away with any uh, labeling that could be on there because he did monumental work uh, as it went. You know, and of course, our country was going to fall, our state was going to fall apart because of voter ID. You never hear anything about it except true. we have good elections in Mississippi. So I'll forever be grateful, and I think that, that scores points in Republican circles hmm. when you realize here was somebody who really spearheaded and did a lot of work uh, to help us get to where we are now on election integrity in Mississippi, which is not the case in a lot of states and true. certainly not the case in some national elections that we've we've experienced some of that. But I've seen, you know, and worked with him on that issue and seen that, and so I'm, I'll forever be more be appreciative, and that ought to be worth a lot uh, to, I think, voters in a primary as you look ahead. Okay. Well, I, I think uh, I feel like that uh, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman will certainly tout that as a major accomplishment. Uh, you know, I can also say, now this, again, goes back to his, his uh, time as Secretary of State. He did a lot in the Secretary of State's office. Uh, when he took over um, that, that role, that, that office, the Secretary of State's office needed a lot of work. I'll just be honest yeah. about it. And uh, my company was actually involved in a fair amount of the automated systems. The lieutenant governor, present lieutenant governor, then secretary of state, understood the need to modernize the environment there in the secretary of state's office. So he did a fair amount there. Now, obviously, I don't know how, how much that is um, a record you can point to when you're running for lieutenant governor. I think people always want to know, as we used to say in the sales business, what have you done for me lately, right? So <laughs> All the time. All the time. And that's the, the situation here. So he'll have to defend his record 
as lieutenant governor, as all incumbents, as you well know, have to do. Absolutely. And I think that it, it will be a, certainly a, a, a race. I can't believe we're in April already, <laughs> you know, so we're not really that it seemed like it was forever away to get to the elections this yeah. year, but we're there. Uh, and, I, and I know this, uh, Governor Hoseman has been through, a, uh, you know, the legislative sessions, they just finished up, as you know, and they're, I'm it's sure, grueling. it's a grueling deal, and he's had so much that he's had to handle, and I think has handled it really well, and Mississippi's in a great uh, place. And I'm thankful that we've had the leadership, both from the, the governor and the lieutenant governor, that keeps Mississippi. Uh, here's a novel idea, isn't it, that we are in the black as a state, you know, and when you see what happens in, you know, you mentioned Illinois earlier in your broadcast. Upside down. We don't want to be there. Mm-mm. And so uh, the great thing about our state is we've, we live within our means, and I think that's a critical part. And I, and I do believe this, that, uh, you know, Delbert Hoseman has been somebody that I've I've trusted, that I think will do the, the right thing. Now he's going to get a lot of intake. He's a, he's a lot smarter than I am, which is maybe not saying a whole lot. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I I believe that at the end of the day he'll prevail in this primary. Interesting. So the the uh, Chris McDaniel and his camp. Uh, what what we see so far, at least, that they're trying to um, not trying to, but in their campaign. Um, efforts are hanging on, attributing to the lieutenant governor things that didn't get done, such as tax reform, uh, eliminating specifically sure. eliminating the income tax, the the ballot initiative process, uh, something else that uh, they they feel like the lieutenant governor stood in the way of, and, and I think to some extent that is true that uh, he wasn't a, a big fan of uh, complete elimination of the income tax. Uh, he did support the higher signature threshold, but they're members of the Senate as well, the state Senate. Uh-huh. It wasn't just the lieutenant governor, the point I make. So the question is, is that enough to uh, to, to overcome an, an incumbent as a challenger and uh, emerge victorious? That's well, the question. You know, and, and a great question, but I think in this case it's, it's not. But I will say you have to always ask, okay, why? Did that not not happen? And yeah. Of course, we go back to last year. There was a, a significant reduction in the income tax burden there in Mississippi, was. but there was a push to completely eliminate that. That's happened in some state. We'd like, you know, sure, we'd like to be able to say that we're on par with other states that have eliminated that. But there is a history of some states, Kansas, for instance, Kansas. that eliminated it and then all of the money that was there just wasn't there anymore, and they wound up in a real pickle and and had to do that. So what happened with the excess funds that were there? Did they just hold them or keep them? No, most of it's going towards infrastructure projects, which the whole state will benefit from. So I think you have to ask, why did you not do that? Uh, Does it mean you're against cutting taxes? No, he's proven that he supports uh, tax cuts, and but he's in a situation, too. You have a responsibility to the state, and you don't have to go far past the capital city, for instance, or drive down some roads, even in the state, that we know we need extra money for that infrastructure needs. And if that's where it goes, uh, as opposed to it funding an extension or expansion of government, then then I think you can make that argument that, hey, this is a good thing for our state. And we can always come back and pick that back up if things continue. Uh, do we think that we'll ha- we've got more money right now than we've ever had? Yeah. Will that continue ten years from now? Mm, 
No, Who it's, knows? it's something that has to be probably considered. Probably not. You're right. And there, so. and there were some senators that had that concern, and the House went back and kind of uh, made some modifications to the plan to phase it in over a longer period of time. We just couldn't get any traction sure. at the end of the day and, and didn't get it done. I'm not sure how realistic it is to, to see it happen in, even in the next uh, in the next class. I, so. I think it'll still be on the, uh, on well, the table it and we'll see some improvements. And, and look, maybe the thing in the future is, okay, let's say a year from now our revenue exceeds uh, those projections and continues to do that, then you can start chipping away at it. Even if it's not in one year, if we get there, then I think everybody would be pretty yeah. pleased. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the uh, nominee for state superintendent really wasn't a nominee because in accordance with our law the state board of education hired they have the authority to hire the state superintendent state superintendent uh, that they hired in november robert taylor dr robert taylor um, came on the job in january worked a couple of months went to the senate and could get confirmed of course that was uh, probably one of the higher profile issues that happened right towards the end of the session uh, many in the in the public, at least, that, that uh, support Chris McDaniel say, well, this was Delbert's pick. He supported him, but yet the statement he made after he wasn't confirmed didn't seem to be consistent with that. No, and and I think it's one of those that if that's all if if that's all you got for a campaign, then I'd say you're probably okay. not going to get a whole lot of attraction. Most people in the state probably couldn't even tell you who the nominee was confirmed or not confirmed uh, but I do think that if you bring somebody in and you're trusting your Department of Education to make the right pick you, you do expect to get support from your elected officials on that unless there's some reason not to. He didn't get confirmed you know, who knows what all was going on behind the scenes uh, in that. But I think that would be a stretch to say that's your winning campaign issue. It's. I never really saw him make a statement until after he was uh, not confirmed. Yeah. I don't think I ever saw I, I looked for it. I couldn't find any statement pro or con with respect to uh, the State Board of Education yeah. selection there. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, you know, all I did was just follow what the news stories were, so I, I couldn't tell you a whole lot about the details. Yeah. But I think that, you know, that it'll at least, uh, the Chris McDaniel will certainly um, highlight that in, in sure. the campaign. It, and and it should. makes sense. You should. should, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. But it's going to be uh, interesting for those of us who are political junkies oh, to yeah. sit back, observe, yeah. and analyze, and entertaining as well for the next few it'll months. Be, it'll be a lot of fun as long as we're not on the ballot. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> right. yeah. Congressman, appreciate you coming in, sir. Enjoy the conversation My and privilege. the insight. Thanks for the invite. Thank you, sir. Congressman Greg Harper has been our guest in the Element Well studio. Stepping aside for a break. Coming right back. With Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk, Mississippi.
back in the Element Well Studios. It is midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Thomas and Greenwood says, speaking of Delbert, why hasn't he or Gunn been on the air since the session? Just hadn't worked out from a scheduling perspective yet, uh, Thomas. I actually believe that Delbert is in Mar-a-Lago today. I'm not mistaken. I think he's doing a fundraiser down there. Um, the, no, I mean, it's not that the network here is ignoring them uh, whatsoever, but they were there pretty late Friday, and I think it's let them let them get uh, catch breath. But don't worry, we'll we'll be talking to them. You can rest assured. We can't make them come sit in the chair. They have to agree to a time. No, that's absolutely right. So uh, won't be any. We issue aren't there. all powerful, Thomas. So uh, right. So Andy chimes in about uh, about Delbert, and I, I I appreciate that. Andy he says his love for MAEP. I don't know what love means. His lack of action on school choice, his reluctance to provide support for the initiative process, his fight against elimination of the income tax, his redistricting plan that eliminated a Republican district. He wants to expand Medicaid, blocked religious exemption for the vaccine. Shall I go on? He says he's not a true conservative, but a career politician. Well, anybody that's been in politics for a long time, wouldn't you have to describe them as a career politician? I'm not throwing stones at Senator McDaniel here, but how long has he been a state senator? Four terms, I think, right? So, uh, and a lot of them have. Uh, They they get down there and they get get, uh, pretty infatuated with the situation. And that's fine, because we don't have term limits. So it's on us, the voters, for sending them back. So I don't, I don't know about the career politician. Um, there's no doubt that uh, the lieutenant governor would like to see an increase in funding for education. There's no doubt about that. I don't know that I've ever heard him say explicitly we need to fully fund in accordance with MAEP. There are many in his camp that support him that do, um, the parents' campaign, et cetera. The MAEP formula is, is really broken and I think needs to be revisited and and uh, restructured. So I, I disagree with the MAP. His lack of action on school choice, you probably know, Andy, that um, I I have been honored and privileged to serve as chairman of the board of Empower Mississippi since it was uh, formed in 2014. And Empower Mississippi, by far, is the most active, the most invested advocate of education choice in the state of Mississippi, um, period. And it, it is our organization that uh, was pretty instrumental in getting the charter schools uh, authorized and established a bill to do so, allow in the state of Mississippi, and then the education scholarship account for uh, dyslexia and special needs. Been working on that. I can tell you, though, Andy, it's not just Delbert Hoseman that opposes school choice. There are numerous members of the House that oppose school choice. There are numerous members in the Senate. That's why we can't get it through. You can't just hang that one expressly on the lieutenant governor. That's all I'm saying. It is true that I've talked to him about it, and I disagree with him on this. He he opposes use of public money for private school education, which is what school choice would allow. He opposes that philosophically. But there are members in the House as well they just oppose school choice because they feel like that that um, it conflicts with public schools. They're just big supporters, proponents of public schools. 
I'm not going to sit here and give you a list of them. You can go look at the bills in the past. But I've, I've talked to many of them about it uh, in both chambers. So it's, it's not accurate to say that if it weren't for Delbert Hoseman, we'd have universal school choice. Now, what I do think is happening on that front is that you're seeing the wall starting to cave in. We had uh, former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, a big proponent of school choice. Certainly the, uh, uh, the most supportive Secretary of Education of school choice ever. And I don't know that we had a president before Donald Trump that ever even talked that much about it. He's a big proponent. That's why he selected Betsy DeVos as his Secretary of Education. But where I'm going with this is that you saw a major bill Major legislation passed in Arkansas, in Iowa, in Florida, in Utah, in Arizona, numerous other states starting to get the hint because I think COVID really brought it to the attention of a lot of people that were saying, you know, uh, this school that, uh, that my kids are going to is, uh, is crazy. It's not real good. And they got exposed to all the nutty content, and they saw a lot of these, these uh, honestly selfish unionized education organizations across the the, uh, country, and folks started speaking up and saying, we want to implement school choice. So the point is, you're seeing that across the country. It is time for Mississippi to get on board and do the same thing. We're going to continue to to, uh, advocate for that. There's some other things as well in Andy's message. Appreciate it, Andy. We'll get to that. I think it was a good synopsis of what most people have an issue with with respect to the lieutenant governor. But right now, it's a break. It's Fox News. It's Super Talk News. We've got a whole hour late uh, left. Stay with us. Get ready. Get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome to Hour 3 of Middays, a Super Talk Mississippi Live from the Element Wealth Studios on this. Hump day? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income growth and guarantees the Dow. It's been kind of hanging around the unchanged line while we've been on the show today. It's presently up 34 points. The NASDAQ, however, is down 170 Big tech stocks are getting hammered. There are lots of concerns about uh, the economy slowing down. We got uh, OPEC cutting production, so we've got concerns about uh, the price of oil going up. We talked about that earlier in the program. That would have a negative impact on the overall aggregate economy. So that is certainly a a concern, and investors are starting to really feel like the economy is about to slow down. The manufacturing data, we shared that yesterday, it was fairly dismal, honestly. That was the report of uh, production and and, uh, in the manufacturing sector in this country and sales overall. Not looking good there. 
And and that that is a usually an indicator of the future economic output. The uh, something else that has surfaced about the the jobs situation. It's becoming incredibly difficult to truly figure out, accurately determine how many jobs are open, because that is an indicator uh, that, and uh, of course you've got jobs created, and then unemployment claims. All of those are, are big economic factors that that investors look at, and and also measure the health of the economy. But one of the things that's happened, and you've probably seen this, Rhino, and I bet at your age you've got some friends that are aware of this, where companies are posting job openings that they really don't have. They're fabricating, if you will, positions. Not that they don't have those positions in the company, but they really don't have openings for them. They're fabricating openings. And it is... It is being reported that the purpose of that is for the company to appear to be faring well, growing, stable. Honestly, never thought about that. I In my years of hiring people and advertising for new hires, I can't imagine I'd go put a job wreck out there that I really didn't intend to hire for. So it's the point is, there's difficulty in determining what is the balance of true job openings. And it's really, there, there's been a little bit of forensic research to figure out when it started, but it's kind of hard to figure out when companies started posting the bogus right. openings. But it didn't really come to a head until one employee in Silicon Valley noticed a, a job opening put online for basically her position. Ah. But it was with a higher pay, and when she applied, <laughs> it was quickly taken down. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so there you go. Kind of exposed the whole farce there. So nobody knows, honestly. Hmm. All right, so also back to our discussion about the lieutenant governor. And again, I, I'm not... I believe it's important for us to really immerse ourselves and hold ourselves accountable to the facts in in electing our political leaders. And so my analysis here, Andy, I hope you understand, is not about so much defending the lieutenant governor as it is just trying to straighten the record. That's all. So it's, I think it's inaccurate, like I said, to say, for example, that L- Lieutenant Governor is the, is the sole reason we don't have universal school choice in the state. There are a number in the House, high, at high levels, and the Senate, powerful leaders that don't support school choice. Something, like I said, we've been working on it in power for 10 years now. And if you look at the charter schools in the state, we have a charter school authorizer board. We have, I think, nine charter schools. We'd like to have 25. It does kind of feel like they really don't want to authorize any charter schools. And I, I it's a concern. So that's one. The, um, the fight against the elimination of the income tax, again, that was a concern shared by many in the Senate. That was not exclusive to uh, the lieutenant governor, though it is true 
He was very concerned about full elimination. But there are other members of the Senate as well. I go back to saying the only really tenable plan in terms of full elimination of the income tax in a very short period of time, I mean, like before you die, (laughs) so you could uh, experience the savings there, was the very first one the House introduced. And people went crazy because it called for an increase of consumption taxes, sales taxes. And all sorts of special interests came out of the woodwork. We can't do that. And I get it. Their their job is to defend their turf and their financial interest. I get it. But we're sort of stuck with some of these, these legacy laws we have where things are taxed at different rates, all these carve-outs that just came about through uh, lots of uh, lots of lobbying through the decades, honestly. And so they're protecting their turf, and they don't want to see that go. So then the House goes back and retrenches and says, okay, well, here's, here's a different version uh, that phases it out without doing that. But the, the challenge there is it was had all sorts of triggers in it that had to be in uh, thresholds that had to be achieved from a revenue perspective by the state, given that it was eliminating revenue from income taxes, before we continued the elimination process. And it likely would have taken 12, 14 years. So we ended up settling for what we could get through, and I applaud that, and uh, and the Speaker in uh, in particular for pivoting on that. Uh, Representative Lamar, Jason White, instrumental as well. So we got a big tax cut, significant, that's phased in over a four-year period of time. But full elimination without increasing consumption taxes, not sure it would ever happen based on the the way it was drafted in in the thresholds that had to be achieved. And that was in an effort to protect against what Congressman Harper was just talking about, uh, that it happened in uh, Kansas where they did it and all of a sudden couldn't make ends meet. Oh, shoot, we got to go raise taxes just to operate the state, to keep the state afloat. Well, you don't want to do that. And so taking some instruction there, I think it was prudent the way that the House revised that. But couldn't couldn't get that through either. But the reality is, I'm uh, to the Senate, I should say, but the reality is I'm not sure it would have ever come to fruition just because of all the thresholds it had to be. Um, uh, performed and and um, achieved would have been a problem. The uh, expansion of Medicaid, yeah, he wants to expand Medicaid, uh, I think. But I, I will say this. I've talked to the lieutenant governor. He's made it very clear that that's not a an exclusive solution. I will say this, uh, and it's not a statement in favor of Medicaid expansion, but we have a serious problem revenue problem with respect to health care in this state. Uh, I don't believe Medicaid expansion exclusively would solve that problem. But it's unresolved. I've not seen anybody offer a solution. All I've seen anybody say is, we can't do that. Okay, well, what can we do? Nothing. Have you seen any proposed solutions other than, hey, guys, here's $100 million for a little while, and that's, that's almost laughable, honestly. That's a drop in the proverbial bucket. So nobody's offered a solution. All I've heard is what won't work. 
So anybody that's running for office, I want to know, what is your solution? Now, if you say there's not a problem, well, then I don't even know how we go further at that point. Uh, I would share with you a number of the financial statements from the uh, various healthcare institutions. But more importantly, I would invite you to talk to those who are operating in that industry on a day-in, day-out basis and facing that problem. Fact is, a lot of people in this state receive health care and they don't pay for it. And the cost of insurance is more than they make in a year. We've discussed that before, uh, how expensive that's gotten because of the Affordable Care Act. How crazy. That's one of the reasons, for sure. So that's an issue. Uh, The religious exemption for the vaccine, honestly, guys, I don't know much about that. I thought that only applied to COVID, or are we talking about childhood vaccines as well? I can tell you, it's not just Delbert Hoseman that opposes that. The vast majority of people in that capital oppose that. We're coming right back with more here on Midday. Stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Lieutenant Governor did not support pay raises for himself in the legislature. Um, I, I would just erase that, honestly, uh, as an issue because the Lieutenant Governor doesn't need a pay raise. I can tell you that from a financial perspective and could care less about that. And also remember, that goes into effect what was proposed. It actually did go into effect, right? They got signed. Actually, the governor let it, let the time, the clock run out on it. That's pay raises for the statewide elected leaders. Remember that, Rhino? That's right, as you recall it. I believe so, yeah. I think he let the time and did sign it. And so, in accordance with our law, it became law by default as a result of him not signing it. So, that does increase the pay for our statewide leaders in the next term. Not the present term when it was when it was enacted. So at the time it was enacted, as far as the uh, pay raises for the legislators, I honestly don't remember where the lieutenant governor stood. I do know that it passed the Senate, the state Senate, and then Senator Chris McDaniel did make a motion to reconsider, which was not tabled, which essentially killed the bill. Do remember that. And uh, if someone wants to check me on that, feel free to do so. I'm pretty sure that I have uh, reviewed that thoroughly, and that is what happened. That was the procedure that occurred. So I, I, And I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, what should they make? It's, what's a fair wage for a governor, a lieutenant governor, speaker of the House, et cetera, auditor? 
Treasurer, Attorney General, Secretary of State. I that that doesn't really bother me. I mean, if you, I don't think you can find a number that people would be happy with. What number is that? Zero? I, I don't know. Um, he did, in fact. The other knock you hear quite a bit was that the lieutenant governor did appoint Democrats to, to chairmanships. That's true, but there are 52 senators, and as crazy as it is, there are 46 committees. 46! That's a problem to me right there. Why do we got so many committees? Now, to avoid, and there are only 36 Republicans, so if you wanted to not appoint any Democrats whatsoever to committee chair, you'd have to double up Republicans. You'd have some that would chair two committees, multiple committees. It doesn't have to, have to be necessarily two. Is that in the best interest of the citizens? And what legislation either got killed or went forward as a result of having Democrats in those positions, those chair positions. You know, Rhino, we looked that up, and there were some of these committees, I didn't even know what the heck they did, and then I looked further, what bills did they consider? Zero. They had no bills. So that's great. You're a committee chairman that never got a bill. That's powerful. And then you scratch your head and say, why the heck do we have these committees? Um, so well, I understand the knock there, and I know a lot of people are were uh, bent out of shape about the fact that Senator Hobb Bryan was appointed as chair of the health, and then Senator David Blunt, for example, chair of gaming. But, but again, the question, uh, those are the two, I guess, that popped up the most. The question is, what bills either got killed or got approved? by those committees that would have had a different outcome if Republicans were in charge. I'm trying to understand the consequences. I I get the idea, the concept, and I wondered that as well. Why did a Republican lieutenant governor appoint Democrats to key committee chair? That seems unusual. Then I looked at it and said, well, heck, there are 46 committees with 52 senators. So you're limited unless you feel like that you want to double up some of those committees. Certainly we could double up some of the committees that didn't get any bills, you would think. But on the other hand, you assign Democrats to chair committees that didn't get any bills. So I'm surprised we didn't hear more out of Democrats in that respect. So that's certainly an issue. Um, He didn't endorse Donald Trump. It's something else that Andy points out. I, I... they said he refused to. I don't really know. Is that true? He told Trump to go jump in the Gulf when he requested okay. election data. Okay. Um. What? You know, I don't. I don't know how all that works. Does the president have a right to election data from a state like that? I don't know how that works. I don't remember the exact details, but I think he was asking for a lot more than just up down who voted what. Yeah, I mean, if that role was reversed, tough to give over without giving up the privacy of Mississippians. I wouldn't want that if a Democrat asked for it as well. Uh, Go back to 2016. 
not Trump wasn't very popular in the primary in Mississippi. In fact, I believe Cruz won the primary in 2016. I believe Senator McDaniel supported Ted Cruz in, in many of his uh, his supporters and and um, uh, and acolytes did. So, pretty sure Ted Cruz, right, right. If you look at that, won the primary in Mississippi. Of course, Donald Trump went on to win the secure the nomination, and then of course he carried the state. Mm, March eighth, twenty sixteen, the Mississippi Republican presidential primary. Trump wound up with 25 delegate counts with 196,000 votes, and Cruz got 15 delegates with 150,000. Okay. That's 2016? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm mistaken on that. I thought that uh, maybe what I'm recalling is that uh, is that uh, Cruz received the support of Chris McDaniel. I mean, I I tacitly supported Ted Cruz as well over, over uh, Donald Trump. I do think there were some that supported Kasich inside the state. I think I think the lieutenant governor Delbert may have been a Kasich supporter, who was a actually a very good member of the House of Representatives back in the Clinton era. He just fell off the deep end after that, and I was asked to attend a fundraiser for him when he came to Mississippi, and I declined. I, I just couldn't see fit to support him for for president. Uh, my choices were really kind of torn between. Cruz and uh, and Trump at the time. Yeah, Kasich came in fourth with twenty one thousand votes. There you behind go. Marco Rubio in third with thirty six thousand. Okay, makes sense. There you go. Uh, it, like I said, Kasich had a fair amount of support here from state lawmakers, not lawmakers, but political figures. I should say. I'm pretty sure that that uh, the lieutenant governors was one of them. So. Um, I hear you, you know, and I, I I understand, and I have those concerns. So let's talk about the future, though. I, I would hope that certainly an incumbent, their track record, their resume, could be considered a very strong harbinger of how they would govern in the future. No doubt about that, and that's got to be considered. I mean, that is that's their that's their calling card, if you will. But what I would really like to see these candidates focus on are the issues that are are of concerns uh, to Mississippians from the perspective of how do we improve the quality of life in our state? How do, how do we affect that as a, as a lawmaker, and in particular a very powerful one in the form of the lieutenant governor? And I, I'll share with you some statistical data that um, crossed my email box today, and and it's from Wallet Hub. I subscribe to Wallet Hub. I find it fascinating. It is a uh, an organization that does a lot of research and analysis and and ranking of uh, a number of uh, financial matters. Thus, the title Wallet Hub. And more specifically, financial and economic matters as it pertains to individuals and households. So they just did one on financial literacy. Financial literacy. And they've got a methodology for that. It's not exactly what you think it is and it would be, uh, meaning it's not exactly you know how much you know about finance. It's just some other metrics that they 
considered to be an indicator of financial literacy. I'll share that with you when you come when we come back after the break here. I think you'll find it uh, really interesting as to what we learned about the state of Mississippi. We're in the Element Well Studios on middays. Coming right back. With Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well Studios. Baxter says, I'm going to get to the Wallet Hub study in just a minute, folks. I think you'll be interested in uh, what they found in Mississippi with respect to what they call financial literacy. I don't really think that's what these measurements show, but nonetheless. Baxter says, school choice would be a great thing for Mississippi, especially in the Delta, where one of my best friends is currently teaching 11th graders how to read because they can't learn in public schools. However, if education isn't encouraged in the home, it doesn't matter how much legislation you write. I agree, and while, of course, I'm a huge proponent of school choice, here's the question, though, Baxter. Where are they going to go? Okay, you got a choice. Choice of what? Go 100 miles away? See, that's the issue, because even with school choice, keep in mind, this is something that the pool, the school choice opponents typically don't discuss. You may have the choice to take your money wherever you want. That's the idea. The money follows the student. So if the student wants to disenroll from public school and attend private school, they receive essentially what's called a voucher. You've heard that term before. The amount of money that is allocated to them by the state and the, the, the county as well, the school district, and they would use that to pay tuition at a private school, as, as one example of school choice, public school to private school. Well, if there's no private schools, that not only do they not have that option, but the private school's not compelled to accept them. They don't, they don't have to say, hey, yeah, you got your money, come on in. It's the same application process that applies to everyone. So the other option is you're not tethered to the school that corresponds with your address. You you live uh, at a particular address, whatever um, your home is, That's there's a school assigned to cover that address. I mean, that's the way the school districts are drawn up. And uh, you could go uh, outside of the district to another school in another district. Well, that becomes an issue as well. Start overwhelming. They all pull out and want to go to another one. In Madison County, my home county, for example, there have been concerns, legitimate concerns expressed by 
folks whose uh, children attend Madison County schools fear that students from Jackson Public Schools, students from Canton Public Schools, as an example, would seek to transfer to the Madison County schools because they perform a lot better than either Canton or Jackson. And it's not far. We, we, we're we sitting right here in this studio, and just outside the window is the county line road that separates Madison and Hines counties. And right around where we're positioned are a number of residences in the city of Jackson that attend Jackson Public Schools, and if they were 100 yards across the road, they could go to Ridgeland High School, which is a Madison County uh, school, which does perform much better. So that's an issue. It's 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 complicated. I'm all for, for school choice, but it's got to be done methodically, and there's got to be some careful thought put into that. It's not just, hey, everybody exits the public schools and lands in better schools, the poor-performing public schools, I should say. And in Mississippi, where we have a lot of rural and remote areas, that problem's even bigger in that there are no options. You look at some of the very sparsely populated counties, you'd have to go 100 miles to find another school. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but another a high-performing school, let's put it that way. Right. So that's that's an issue. that, And all of that, I think, needs to be considered uh, and addressed. But I, I get it. I understand. I have that concern as well. I, I, I share this with you. You may have seen that the city of Chicago, the nation's third largest, just elected a new mayor. Lori Lightfoot's out. And this mayor, it was all you need to know was Bernie Sanders' choice. It was close, 52-48, something like that, which is honestly good. That's progress in deep blue Democrat Chicago. Guess who the union supported, which run the schools in Chicago? You get three and the first two don't count. Of course they threw their weight behind. The more progressive, who will cater to their every whim. Also, you should know, in the city of Chicago, America's third largest city, 24% of high school students, when they graduate, are proficient in reading and 25% in math. We're doing a huge disservice to the children of this nation. And Mississippi's no exception where we have poor-performing schools. The key to being self-sufficient, a productive adult, and not being, a honestly, a drain on society, being able to take care of yourself and your family, is to acquire some skills so that you can get a meaningful job productive, respectful work. That's that's the piece that just gets overlooked so often. And the unions, the teachers' unions, I'm sorry, they don't care about that. They proved that during COVID. We can't go back to school till we get several hundred billion dollars for stupid crap that's got nothing to do. And now their report surfacing, not that we didn't know this, that there's some districts in the in the country, Rhino, I know you'll be shocked at this, that use their COVID money to teach implicit bias crap. Ah, uh, no. Say it ain't so. I, I just got livid when I saw that. All right, this financially... Uh, most financially literate states in a, 
according uh, in accordance with this Wallet Hub study. First, Mississippi ranks 33 overall, which was better than I thought. And here's the reason: it's because there's one of the five categories Miss Mississippi did score. Decent at, and that's high school financial literacy. Now, has there not been an effort here in Mississippi recently, Rhino, the last few years to try to improve and introduce more subject matter into the high schools covering uh, finance, household finance, and so forth? I think, it it I think feels like that's been a half hearted push. Since I was in school, okay, and you'll you'll have one year where it's a big deal, and the next five years it's nothing, and another time around it's a big deal, and another four years go by and it's nothing. Well, something is working at least relative to the other states because remember this is a measurement against the other states, not against any particular standards. That's different. Right. It's like a it's like a grade curve, if you will. So we scored 18th there, which is not bad, honestly. All right, but listen to these other categories. Percentage of adults 18 and over who spend more than they earn. Their their outflows of their household in their household exceed their inflows, their income. We rank, including Washington, D.C., 51st. We have more adults in this state spend more than they earn than any other. Percent of adults age 18 and plus with rainy day funds, so-called savings accounts, rainy day funds. If you've ever listened to, uh, oh, shoot, what's the guy's name in Nashville, the finance guy, Dave? Like his name, uh, radio guy? His name Ramsey? Is Dave Ramsey, thank you. Couldn't remember his last name. He's always talking about you. The word envelopes just kept flooding my brain. Exactly. I couldn't think of his name. Rainy day funds. Okay, we rank 50th. So that means... Less of our adult population has a rainy day fund than all but one other state or Washington, D.C. Number, uh, percentage, I should say, of unbanked households, meaning they don't have a bank account, 51st. Number, uh, percentage of adults age 18 paying only the minimum on their credit cards, 51st. This This is a measurement, in my view, of the environment in Mississippi. Because everything emanates from this data. If you think about what causes us to be 51st in terms of people who spend more than they earn, who aren't banked, who only are able to make the minimum or choose to make the minimum payment on their credit card, have savings accounts, rainy day funds, all of this is a function of uh, our economic status. The governor knows this, I promise. He knows this, and he works on this, and he thinks about this a lot. And I applaud him for that. But this is this ought to be the focus. You guys have heard me say that I think that we should we should install really large LCD screens in each chamber down at the Capitol, the Senate, the House, and those LCD screens continuously display in real time, as it is updated, our median and our average household income and our per capita income. That ought to be the focus. Everything you do, when that number rises, when that number improves, and our ranks, by the way, in the states, amongst the states in those categories, when that goes up, that's when things get better. 
It's what it takes. We're coming right back with the final segment on Middays. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios, winding it down here today. We're going to be at the Corner Market in Hattiesburg tomorrow. Looking forward to that. So I got asked on the ceasefire tax line, who are you in favor of for lieutenant governor? And I responded, me as a write-in candidate. <laughs> Laugh out loud. So, uh, oh, appreciate that. Comes back, says, I wish you would run. Well, I, I appreciate the thought. Um, just not uh, not the right timing. At this point, still continue to contemplate and pray. Don't know. You never know where where the good Lord leads you. And I also want to point out that, and I appreciate Andy sending in what I think is a, a good synopsis of what most people have concerns about with respect to the lieutenant governor. I think I've shared before that I've known the lieutenant governor probably longer than anybody in the Capitol, going back to 1985. He was my original corporate lawyer, dealt with him, and and uh, honestly, I don't always agree with him on his policy positions and his philosophy of government. I don't know that I always agree with anybody. And, and if you do, you might might wonder about that a little bit. Um, also, full disclosure, I did support uh, Senator Chris McDaniel in his run for U.S. Senate in 2014. And that was largely because I felt that it was time for a change. That's all. I had concerns about Senator Cochran. I appreciated very much his service, and he was uh, certainly a giant in the U.S. Senate, and I think did a lot for the state of Mississippi, but I just felt like it was time to make a change. And I wrote an op-ed to that effect and didn't say one negative thing about the sitting senator. And really, the op-ed didn't consist a great deal of a lot of outward praise for his challenger, Chris McDaniel, it was just, here's the situation, and I think it's time to make a change, and I want to see us put forward what I thought would be the best chance of lifting Mississippi off the bottom of the heap, just like this Wallet Hub study I shared. And and I'm not being critical of our, our state leaders and saying, hey, it's your fault that we scored so poorly here. I'm saying this is what we got to put on the table to address. I'm that's all I'm trying to do is call attention to it. This is fundamental. That's why I asked. That's why I suggested putting the big scoreboards up in the Capitol. Your eye ought to be on that all the time because everything stems from that. You may not like it, and now now think about. It. Does that mean oh you think money's the most important thing? No, it doesn't. What I think is that policy that produces the best economic outcomes is what's the most important. And guess what's fundamental to that? Freedom and free markets. The problem I have is that our government thinks that, you know, if we just do away with some of that freedom and get more involved and control and manage more of the economy, we'll produce better outcomes in the name of equity. Well, that's just wrong. And I stay worried about them trying to 
kill the golden goose there. Or the goose that laid the golden egg, I guess. But I do. I worry about that. It's Bernie Sanders getting indignant with Howard Schultz because he created a company that made a billionaire. You may not agree with Howard Schultz's politics. I don't. But you certainly have to keep in perspective the guy created a global household name and produced enormous value for society. And he's just one of many. So that nuance is important. I'm for protecting free markets. I'm for accentuating individualism, risk-reward, and getting the government to stay the heck out of the way of the people uh, and consumers and markets running things. I don't want Bernie Sanders running the economy. I shudder to think about that. I've seen all I care to see out of Joe Biden in that respect. I'm tired of putting physical traits and attributes ahead of qualifications and performance and experience and value in decision-making when it comes to hiring, promotions, compensation, contract awarding, down the list, naming members of the cabinet, which was all done with the idea of trying to populate a chessboard. We need a knight, a rook, a queen. (laughs) Seriously, that's what we did. A pawn. That's what we did. Um, Rather than, you know, the best person to be secretary of whatever the cabinet post is, is this one, like with your eyes closed. I don't know what the heck their ethnicity is or their race or their gender. It's irrelevant. That's Those are the ideals I think we have to return to, as Vivek Ramaswamy says, uh, unapologetic pursuit of excellence. I'm looking for candidates that align with my positions there and philosophy there, that that's how we also need to operate the state of Mississippi. And we've got to take stock of and reflect upon the challenges we have, particularly from an economic perspective, that's at the root of our health care problems. It's all about our, our economic status, our socioeconomic status of our population. We're out of here today. We're going to be in Hattiesburg tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.